Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to A History of Europe. This is the second part on a series of the First World War and its origins. This part is about the Russo-Japanese War and the Revolution of 1905. On the 13th of March 1881, Tsar Alexander II of Russia was travelling back to his residence at the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg. His closed two-seater carriage was drawn by a pair of horses, and he was accompanied by six mounted Cossacks, and followed by three sleighs carrying, among others, the chief of police. On his way back, Alexander decided to pay a brief visit to his cousin, the Grand Duchess Catherine. This decision gave enough time for a band of revolutionaries intent on assassinating the Tsar to take up position. As the Tsar travelled along a quay, one of the revolutionaries appeared and threw a bomb under the carriage. One of the Cossacks was mortally wounded and the carriage damaged, but Alexander himself was unhurt. The chief of police offered to drive the Tsar back to the palace in his sleigh. Alexander agreed, but he decided to first see the culprit and survey the damage. He was ready to drive away when a second revolutionary threw another bomb at his feet, which ripped through the air and into the emperor. His legs were shattered below and his abdomen torn open, and he died about a quarter of an hour later. With the sobriquet of the Liberator, Alexander II was probably the most liberal of all Tsars of Russia. He had enacted a number of reforms, the most significant and famous being the abolishing of serfdom through the Russian Empire in 1861. Serfs gained the full rights of free citizens, including rights to marry without having to gain consent, to own property and to own a business. Among Alexander's other reforms, he organised the judicial system, abolished corporal punishment and promoted university education. In general, he adopted a pacifist foreign policy. Although he fought a brief war with the Ottoman Empire in 1877-78, pursued further expansion into Siberia and the Caucasus and conquered Turkestan in Central Asia. Among his greatest domestic challenges was an uprising in Poland in 1863, to which he responded by stripping the country of its separate constitution and incorporating it directly into Russia. Alexander planned further political reforms. Earlier, on the very same day that he was assassinated, he had signed the so-called Loris-Melikov Constitution, 
which, although not a full constitution, was a step in the direction of liberal reform and would have created two new legislative commissions. His assassination naturally shocked the ruling class and stopped all reform dead in its tracks, thus achieving the exact opposite of what the conspirators were aiming for. The murdered Tsar's son, who succeeded him as Alexander III, was highly reactionary and reversed some of the liberal reforms of his father. In an autocracy such as Russia, the character and political priorities of the monarch made a great difference, and the last two Tsars, Alexander III and Nicholas II, judged nearly all their acts by the effect they would have on the maintenance of the existing political order, which most often meant the preservation of authority in their own hands. The Russian police arrested most members of the revolutionary movement. Their cells became the object of concerted police attention. A new and much larger department of police was created, among whose tasks was the protection of senior officials and the investigation of terrorist organisations. In foreign policy, the Russians were aggrieved at the Western powers for forcing them in the Congress of Berlin of 1878 to give up territorial gains they had made in the war against the Ottomans. They were also painfully aware of Russia's lack of money, railways and industrial capacity to allow recourse to arms. With limited options of expansion in the West, Russian leaders turned instead to the East, acquiring land in the Far East, as far as the Pacific coast, as well as in Central Asia. The public cared less, however, for gains east of the Caspian than for influence and respect along the Black Sea and the Danube. Uncertain of how widespread the revolutionary conspiracy was, the new Tsar, Alexander III, acted cautiously in diplomatic affairs. During his reign, Russia fought no major wars, which earned him the sobriquet of the peacekeeper. In 1881, after a delay caused by the assassination of his father, Alexander III renewed the League of Three Emperors. Back in 1873, Russia had joined with Germany and Austria in the Three Emperors League, less a formal alliance than a declaration of solidarity against subversive movements, but which gave Germany the assurance of support, or at least non-interference, should there be conflict with France. There remained friction, however, between the three partners, especially between Vienna and St. Petersburg, over their interests in the Balkans, and the latter's support for Austria's restive Slav subjects. In the year 1891, an agreement between Germany and Russia named the Reinsurance Treaty, was due to expire. Russia asked for its renewal, but when Kaiser Wilhelm II removed Otto von Bismarck from office, he chose to set his own diplomatic path and let the agreement lapse. An alliance in 1894 of Russia with France became a cornerstone of Russia's military and foreign policy and saved her from isolation. Historians disagree as to whether it was the avoidable outcome of Germany's brusque rejection of alliance, or whether the divergence of interests between Russia and Austria in time would have had the effect of bringing together Paris and St. Petersburg. 
It foreshadowed the lineup of powers that would enter the First World War in 1914. Developed further into the Franco-Russian Entente of 1899, it obligated Russia to launch all her available troops against Germany's eastern frontier if the latter should attack France. If Russia were attacked by Germany or by Austria with Germany's backing, the French would immediately commit all their available forces against Germany. A significant benefit for Russia was the receipt of French investment. By 1895, more than half of all publicly traded Russian securities were in French hands, which helped boost the Russian economy. Contrary to the myth later fabricated by the Bolsheviks of Russian industrial failure, at the turn of the century the Russian economy was booming. Russia possessed enormous natural and human resources, and although lagging behind Western Europe, was industrialising rapidly. By 1913, the Russian economy had become the fourth largest in the world, growing at almost 10% annually, and grew as much grain as Britain, France and Germany combined. Nicholas II was aged as 26 in 1894 when he became Tsar of Russia. No one expected him to become ruler so early on. His father, Alexander III, was massive and strong, but in his late forties fell ill with kidney disease and died. To be the autocratic ruler of such an immense empire might have been too much for anyone, and Nicholas clearly failed to possess the necessary skills. The author Margaret Macmillan writes that he lacked confidence and compensated by being rigid and stubborn, where a wiser and more self-assured person would have been prepared to make compromises or to be flexible. He was a conscientious monarch, at least in the first half of his reign, sitting for long hours over reports and papers of state, annotating them and issuing instructions on a host of matters. However, his attention was mostly paid to the minutiae of policy than larger matters of state, except at moments of crisis, which can be seen more as avoiding than properly tackling the issues of the day. He disliked opposition or confrontation, but was notoriously indecisive. Without firm ambitions for his country, policy both at home and abroad was to be erratic and confused. In the year 1904, the Russian Empire stumbled into a war in the Far East. Although Russians had reached the Pacific coast already in 1639, they were too thinly stretched over the vast expanse of Siberia to properly exploit the area. The Russian government now looked to secure resources from the Far East to speed up the country's transformation into a great industrial and commercial empire. They were confident that their plans for gradual and largely economic penetration of China could be accomplished without clashing with the other states that were scrambling for influence in the region. They sought markets, warm water ports, sources of raw material and to secure a rail link which would carry trade between Europe and Asia. A key component of the plan was the building of the Trans-Siberian Railway which began in 1891 and was financed by the French. Russian ambition to build up its influence in Korea and the Chinese territory of Manchuria, and perhaps to absorb them into the growing Russian Empire, 
threatened conflict with other European powers, especially the British, and most dangerously of all with Japan, which was a rapidly modernising nation and becoming a significant player in Asia. In the years 1894-95, Japan had fought a war with the Moabund Chinese Empire, partly over who was to control Korea, and had won a decisive victory. In the peace, China recognised the independence of Korea, thus paving the way for Japan to move in. Japan also got possession of Taiwan and some nearby islands, as well as concessions to build railways and ports in Manchuria. The European powers, especially Britain, Germany and Russia, had their own ambitions in Manchuria, and they forced Japan to back away from there. The Japanese, therefore, had reason to feel aggrieved when the Russians promptly extracted their own concessions there, including the right to build a southern spur of the Trans-Siberian Railway across the north of Manchuria. The French made it clear that their alliance with Russia applied only to Europe, not to Asia, and that they would remain neutral in the event of a conflict. China was too weak to do anything about this move into its territory. The anti-Western Boxer Rebellion in China brought further tensions when Russia used it as an excuse to send troops to the region. When the Russians failed to then withdraw the troops, university students in Japan demonstrated both against Russia and against their own government for not taking any action. Negotiations took place between the two sides, but the Japanese became increasingly convinced that the Russians were only using the talks to buy time, and in the meantime were further building up their military forces. Tsar Nicholas II did not actively seek war with Japan, but was encouraged to take a tough stance by the German Kaiser Wilhelm. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Japan issued a declaration of war on the 8th of February 1904. However, three hours before Japan's declaration of war was received by the Russian government, and without warning, the Japanese Imperial Navy attacked the Russian Far East fleet at Port Arthur, today the Chinese city of Lushun. One Japanese force landed further north to cut the railway line, and another landed in nearby Korea. 
the folly of the Russians of provoking a war with the Japanese when their supplies and reinforcements were thousands of miles along the single track of the Trans-Siberian Railway rapidly became apparent. Russia suffered a string of defeats over the next 18 months. Their Far Eastern fleet was bottled up by the Japanese at Port Arthur and attempts to break out by land or sea only led to heavy Russian losses. Port Arthur surrendered at the start of January 1905 and by then most of the Russian Pacific fleet lay at the bottom of the sea. The Russians then sent over their Baltic fleet but they were forced to sail around Africa when the British refused to allow them to pass through the Suez Canal and only reached the Sea of Japan in May 1905. When the Russian Admiral learned of the fall of Port Arthur, he realised that the only hope was to reach the port of Vladivostok. There were three possible routes to take, with the shortest and most direct passing through the Shumima Strait between Korea and Japan. However, this was also the most dangerous route, as it passed between the Japanese home islands and the Japanese naval bases in Korea, so the Russians travelled at night to try and avoid discovery. Unfortunately for them, they were spotted by one of the Japanese armed merchant cruisers and the Japanese combined fleet sailed out to attack. The Battle of the Shishima Straits of the 27th and 28th of May 1905 was one of the most stunning naval victories in history. The Russian Baltic fleet was annihilated and over 40,000 men drowned and even more captured. Japanese losses amounted to just 116 men and a few torpedo boats. News of Russia's defeat was met with shock in Europe. The first major military victory in the modern era of an Asian power over a European nation, Japan's international prestige soared while that of Russia plummeted. In the absence of Russian competition and the European nations distracted during World War I, Combined with the Great Depression that followed, the Japanese military began efforts to dominate China and the rest of Asia. President Theodore Roosevelt of the United States, sympathetic to Japan but concerned for the American position in Asia, acted as mediator between the two sides, and in September the two sides signed the Treaty of Portsmouth. The Russians were spared from having to pay the indemnity which Japan had initially insisted upon, but they did have to yield rights and territories on which they had counted as sources of future wealth and greatness. Japan received the southern half of the Russian island of Sakhalin and the lease of the Laotung Peninsula with its ports. Korea was declared to be independent and within the Japanese orbit. The Russians, with their control of northern Manchuria and Mongolia, confirmed turned their attention to Europe. For his mediation on the treaty, Roosevelt won the newly instituted Nobel Peace Prize. The reason for Russia's defeat is summarised by Hans Roger as quote, lack of leadership and of tactical arms, poor training and battle communications, ignorance of the enemy and contempt for their capabilities, together with the enormous logistical problem of assembling and supplying an army over Trans-Siberia, To most Westerners, the Russian defeat was the result of a political backwardness in comparison with Japan, which enjoyed constitutional government. 
The result of the war was therefore seen as a vindication of Western values, which seemed to augur well for the progress of civilization and good governance across the world. For the Russian people, their country's humiliating defeat served to deepen and bring into sharp focus their unhappiness with their rulers and their own society. As the multiple deficiencies of the war effort became apparent, criticism grew, both of the government and also of the Tsar himself. In spite of heavy censorship and repression, demands grew for an end to autocracy, for representative government and for civil liberties. A small but fanatical minority had long since given up hope of reform and were instead committed to overthrowing the old order violently through acts of terrorism or armed insurrection. Also, industrial workers, their numbers growing quickly, as Russia's industrialization charged ahead, showed an increasing militancy and willingness to go on strike. On the 22nd of January 1905, a giant procession of workers and their families converged on the Winter Palace, residence of Tsar Nicholas II. They brought with them a petition with 135,000 signatures asking for improved wages and living conditions. The authorities called out the army, which fired point-blank into the crowd. By the end of the day, at least 100 people were killed and another 30,000 wounded. Bloody Sunday, as it came to be called, helped to set off a dress rehearsal for the Revolution of 1917, in which very nearly was the real thing. As news of the incident spread through Russia's towns and cities, the whole of the country was paralysed by strikes. Peasants attacked landowners' property, and there was a mutiny on the Potemkin, the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet. Across the Russian Empire, many nationalities saw a chance for freedom, and there were mass popular demonstrations against Russian rule from the Baltic provinces and Poland down to the Caucasus. Under huge pressure, Tsar Nicholas II issued a manifesto in October, promising civil rights and a new parliament known as the Duma. The revolutionaries were not involved in the uprising in the beginning. Many of its leaders, including Lenin, were abroad in exile. Thanks to the disunity of the opposition, the Russian government and army managed to restore order by the summer of 1906. Nicholas did everything he could to limit the scale of the reforms, and in 1906 issued a new decree, whose first article referred to the supreme autocratic power of the Tsar. It laid down his right to make war, control the Orthodox Church, and to dissolve the Duma at a moment's notice. Constitutional government was further weakened by the Tsar's control over the appointment of ministers and the military budget. In the following years, Nicholas II did his best to undermine the constitution and to limit civil liberties. He opened the first Duma in April 1906 and dissolved it the same July when it proved insufficiently pliant. Then, in 1907, Nicholas issued a decree which changed the electoral laws so that conservative landowning forces had greater representation in the Duma and liberals on the left considerably less. When the Duma voted against new battleships, Nicholas ignored the vote and went ahead with ordering them anyway. Nevertheless, it was impossible for Nicholas to cancel all the unwanted reforms. From 1905 onwards, the government had to deal with the new fact of public opinion. 
and the press, in spite of attempts by the authorities to censor it, was increasingly outspoken. Political parties were still weak and without deep roots in society, but were slowly forming into a political force. The 1905 revolution inspired Vladimir Lenin, the leader of the Bolsheviks, to take more seriously the peasantry as a revolutionary class and by mobilising them to overstep the so-called bourgeois phase of economic development described by Karl Marx and so to proceed straight to socialism. You've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. If you like the show and would like to support it, please go to patreon.com stroke history Europe. Thank you for all your support. Another great way of helping is by giving a, a good review on iTunes or wherever you found the podcast. The music you heard today was Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony in B minor. Next week we move back to the Ottoman Empire, with the episode entitled The Red Sultan and the Young Turks Revolution. I hope you can join me then. Until then, all the best and goodbye.